Welcome to Mount Horror Baptist Church, and before I get started, you will not hear any organ music at the beginning or the end of the service. The reason why, because I hit the wrong button on the recorder, and I didn't get it recorded in the uh, sanctuary this morning, so I'm at home tonight um, redoing my sermon so that y'all will be able to hear what God has laid upon my heart, and I just thank y'all, hope you be be patient and uh, understand sometimes these things happen, and anyway, we'll, we'll get started. Every four years on the first Tuesday after November the 1st, America elects a president on that day. We also elect all of the members of the House of Representatives and some of the Senate. It's an important day for our nation, but also one that highlights and increases the deep divisions in our society. There will be victory speeches and concession speeches. One person will be the leader of the free world. Roughly three weeks after Election Day, Advent arrives, and Christians prepare to celebrate the birth of their king. This season puts into perspective all of our political wrangling, whatever Christians think about their president, and whoever we voted for in various elections. We are meant to know that there is only one king, Christ. It is him we give our highest allegiance. While our politics have divided us, Advent should bring us together, uniting us around the newborn king and his life the Messiah, the message, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And he is set on the right hand of God. When I think about our polarization and the identity and call of Christ, our King, I'm reminded of the words of John Wesley from the prefix to his explanatory notes upon the New Testament. He said, and I quote, Would to God that all the parties... All the names, all the unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot, and that we might all agree to sit down together as humble, loving disciples at the feet of our common master to hear his word, to embabble his spirit, and to transcribe his life in our own, end quote. Advent beckons all who consider themselves Christians, regardless of whether they are Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, whether you're red, yellow, black, white, polka dot, or striped, to come to the stable and there fall on our knees as the shepherd surely did, yielding our allegiance and our hearts and our will to the newborn king. In this message, we will look at the difference in presidents and kings and the return and the final triumph of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. But first of all, let's turn to Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And then we'll look at Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and then Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. So beginning with Micah, chapter 5, in the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet 
Out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. In other words, to be king in Israel, whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. Now turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. Notice they were looking for the king. And then in Revelation, chapter 19, 11 through 6, the scripture says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in the heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse's. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So in these three scriptures, we have and can see that Christ is the King of of all kings. Now contrast him between presidents and the king of kings. Presidential elections are focal points of power and wealth. This past election is probably the most expensive that has ever taken place. I mean, billions and billions of dollars were spent on each candidate. And just think for a moment if this money could be used for the poor, especially during this time when many people have lost their jobs through the COVID virus that we've had. And so many people were laid off at work. And yet that money could be used to help people during this time of year. And then we see that the winner of the election will be inaugurated on the western steps of the U.S. Capitol with thousands of people looking on. Following the inauguration, the president will enjoy inaugural balls with great food, wine, and dancing. He will live in the White House with a crack security team to protect him and his family. He will come not only the leader of the free world, but the commander-in-chief of the most powerful military on the planet. Contrast that with the King of Kings, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time. He was born in a stable with an animal's feeding trough for his bed. He grew up in the obscure village of Nazareth in the first century Jewish that was equivalent of the other side of the tracks. Far from billionaire status, he was trained at making tools and working with wood as a carpenter. At the age of 30, Jesus began his campaign for the office of king. He traveled from town to town giving various speeches about the kingdom of God. In these campaigns, these speeches, he called people to love God, love their neighbors, and even their enemies. He called his hearers to humbly, in humility, kindness, integrity, 
forgiveness and selfishness. He asked them to care for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, and any other person that is downtrodden. He decried arrogance and hypocrisy. His campaign finance team was probably a few women who traveled with his 12 disciples and provided support for his work. The disciples made up the bulk of his campaign staff, but they had never run a campaign before. They were fishermen, a tax collector, a group of others who had little education, a group of some might describe as misfits, rug muffins. Hardly a team most reasonable people would assemble for such an important task. His campaign trail took him through all the cities and villages where he could be found teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. As he looked at people, Scripture says that he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9, 35-36. It may seem a stretch to think of Jesus as on a campaign trail, but I think this is how his disciples must have seen his work. They anticipated that at some point in the future, he would be installed as king, and they would rule with him. In fact, in, chapter, in Mark chapter 10, 35-45, James and John wanted to sit with Christ on his throne. Each stop Christ made was building support for his reign. He had dinners with leaders. He spoke at huge gatherings with thousands of people. He was constantly talking about his vision and vision for his, referring to his as the kingdom of God. Yet in so many ways, Jesus went about his campaign all wrong. It, that is, if we were judging by the standards we use today, Many of the people wanted a king who would raise an army to push the Romans out of the land, peace through strength. But Christ was talking about another peace, an inner peace. While presidential candidates often court the endorsements of the rich and the powerful, Jesus alienated the powerful and the influential and instead associated with the poor and the powerless. In words of Garth Brooks, Jesus had friends in lonely places. Jesus made very few campaign promises, nothing about lowering taxes or raising taxes, increasing jobs or defeating the Romans, or he didn't promise to make Israel a great nation again. Instead, he spoke about welcoming the stranger, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, caring for the sick. His kingdom would entail self-denial and take up one's cross and follow him. He urged his followers to let their light shine by their good deeds, and, and in this way people would be drawn to the kingdom of God. In his kingdom, Christ promised that the grieving would be comfort. Those who hungered for righteousness would be filled. The merciful would be shown mercy, and the meek would inherit the earth. The citizens of his kingdom would seek to do God's will. They would love God with all their heart, soul, minds, and strength, and they would love their neighbor as they love themselves. Matthew 22, 37-40. Everything Christ taught them was about living as citizens of his kingdom. 
Yet he recognized while on trial with the Roman governor just before his death, he told them, my kingdom is not from this world, John eighteen thirty six. It wasn't, but he wanted his followers to yield their hearts and lives to God to be in that kingdom. What a difference in our president's campaign and Christ. Jesus was also anointed and coronation. The Messiah means anointed one. But in his most common usage, it was another way of saying king. Just as Jesus' campaign was not what we expect from one seeking to rule, Christ's anointing and coronation were likewise out of the ordinary. Typically, the king was anointed with oil by the high priest or a prophet like Samuel anointing King David. But Jesus' anointing came not at the hands of a high priest, but at the hands of three women. One of these women in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 48, was described as a sinner, likely a prostitute to whom Jesus had shown love and mercy. She anointed his feet, and she did this while he was eating at the home of Simon the Pharisee. A second woman anointed his head shortly before his arrest while he was eating at the home of Simon the leper in Matthew 26, verse 6, and Mark 14, verse 3. And in John's gospel, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anoints Jesus' feet while he eats at their home just before his arrest in John 12, 1 through 3. These three acts, a woman seeking to honor Jesus anoints him unaware that this act points to his role as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. Jesus' coronation happens at the hands of the enemy, the Roman soldiers. They planted a crown of thorns and pressed it upon his brow, wounded his sacred head. His exaltation occurred as they stripped him, nailed him to a cross, hosted it up into the air. There he hung slowly, dying for hours. A king nobly laying down his life for his people. The sign above his head stated his crime, which read, The King of the Jews, Mark 15, verse 26. This, of course, was not the end of the story for our king. After his burial, Friday afternoon, he laid in the tomb through the next day, the Sabbath, but on Sunday morning, the stone covering the mouth of his tomb was tossed aside as our king conquered death with his resurrection. He appeared first to the women who followed him, then to the disciples, and ultimately to hundreds of others. He called them to continue the work that he had begun, teaching what he taught and initiating others into his kingdom through baptism so that together they might live as his people, praying and working for God's kingdom to come and the king to return. God's reign is expanded with each person that chooses to follow Christ as their king by accepting him as Lord and Savior of their lives. And then, last of all, the return and final triumph of the King of Kings. 
While Christ was with his disciples, Jesus spoke to his disciples about a final judgment when he returns. The New Testament epistles anticipate a day when history as we know it will be brought to a close. The Bible says, Then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven, fifteen. In Handel's Messiah, the verses that says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Also in Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 6, our scripture that we read, the last part in verse 16 says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in also in Revelation 21 verse 3 through 5, the scripture says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. We live in that period between the triumph of Easter and Christ's return when he makes all things new. We see a world where suffering still occurs, where darkness seems to reign all the time, where kingdoms of this world seem to have the upper hand. We continue to live as followers of king whose kingdom is not of this world. But Christ's followers must share the good news to this world. Can we all celebrate the birth of King Jesus in one accord? Can we all come together to celebrate his birth, his life, his coming again, his resurrection? What about today? Nearly one-third of the world's population claims Jesus as their Messiah or King. Far more have been influenced by the things he taught, the values he exposed, the life he lived. I believe that Christ is the single most influential person to have ever walked this planet. For those who count him as king, as I do, we are awakened each day, recognizing that our highest allegiance, our deepest devotions, and our greatest commitment is not to country, political party, race, even family, but to Jesus Christ, our King, whose kingdom is forever and ever. And though we live in that time between triumphs, the triumph of the resurrection and the second coming, the resurrection gives us confidence that there is a second coming. The resurrection of Christ leads us to be, in the words of Zechariah, prisoners of hope, Zechariah 9.12. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, James Stewart, in his book called King Forever, notes this, and I quote, The world's dark night may still continue, pressing in upon us, but if I have seen Christ, then I know that the darkness of history is now shot through with unquenchable hope and with the final certainty of the glorious outcome of all its struggles. 
or to make it more personal, I may go down into the dark. But if I do, I am still in the hands of Christ who bears the scepter of all the universe and everlasting, makes all things new here, hereafter, and therefore I am safe forever. Christians who believe in the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, believe that this King chose to walk among us when He was born in Bethlehem, when He was there at the beginning of time, and He'll be there at the end of time, and yet He came in the middle of those two, in the middle of eternity, to come down to walk upon this earth, to go through the same things that we, we do as God in Christ, as he walked upon the earth, go through the same things that we do each day, but yet without sin, became the supreme sacrifice, died on the cross, blood was shed to cover our sins. He took our place on that cross so that we could have eternal life. Man. Yep, the Father sent the Son that the world might know who the King of the universe really is and that they might hear His call, know His will, live as His people. The Son, in turn, sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to incarnate the love of Christ. You see, Christ is forever and ever. Our political people, our presidents come and go, but Christ, the King, from everlasting to everlasting. I don't know your politics, but if you're a Christian, I know your king. His Sermon on the Mount, his parables, his great commandments calling us to love God and neighbor represent the laws of his kingdom. Our allegiance to Christ comes above all other allegiance. And as we close this service today, I'd like to invite you to join me in yielding your life to Christ, pledging to follow him as your king. That would be the greatest Christmas gift you can give to Christ. Give him yourself. You know, I've always heard people say, man, I wish I could give Christ something. Give him yourself. Give him your all. You know, and when you do that, you have eternal life. You will live with Him forever and ever. Give God praise and glory in His house today. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. So let us close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we thank you. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you, Lord God, for sending Jesus, your Son, into the world. To walk the same steps as we walk. Go through the same things that we go through every day. But yet without sin. Jesus knows us. He knows our infirmities. He knows that we slip sometimes. He, he knows that. We have someone, a high priest, that knows what we go through. And yet. That's why it's so important for us to receive you as Lord and Savior of their life. And I pray, Lord, that there's someone here or someone listening. 
by the way of the internet who has never received you as Lord and Savior of their life, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will touch their hearts, that they will make that decision right now. That would be the greatest Christmas present you can give to Jesus Christ is giving yourself. In Jesus' name, we make this prayer. Amen.